Today we conclude, after a long run, our series in the Gospel of John uh, titled That You May Believe. And it's taken us largely through the entire gospel. Not every section, there's a lot in there, but I think we've touched upon almost every chapter. And uh, we've, we've focused in this series on the reason that the Apostle John said he wrote his gospel. It's right at the end of chapter 20. Here are those two verses again. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John wrote for the purpose of our response to Jesus, that is, not, not to him. And in that response, in that faith, in that trust that God is inviting us into, there is new life, new life in Jesus' name. So that was the reason John wrote his gospel. We've been holding that in mind throughout the series, responding to Jesus in faith, which means trust, right? Uh, last week, we looked at Jesus' prayer in John uh, chapter 17, specifically the last part of that prayer where Jesus was praying for everyone in the world who would, who would come into a trusting relationship with God because of the message of the apostles. And we, we saw that Jesus' prayer was one of unity. He was praying for us as followers of Christ that we might be united, uh, not just in some human way, but as the Son is united to the Father. The Trinity is our model for unity. It's an amazing thing. So we, we unpacked that. Chapters 18 through 20 largely recount the events of Holy Week. And since we just touched upon those not too long ago in the run-up to Easter, we're fast-forwarding to the last chapter of the gospel, chapter 21, and it's that which we'll read today. So let's listen to the scripture now. This is John chapter 21, verses 1 through 19. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I am going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net to the right side of your boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish. 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. 
Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus had appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter will glorify God. Then he said to him, Follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Thanks, guys. A couple fine young men. (laughs) The dangers of being a pastor's kid on Memorial Day weekend. (laughs) So this final chapter in John records one of the last things Jesus did uh, before he ascended into heaven. Today is Ascension Sunday, by the way, uh, where we as a church remember the ascension, uh, the the often neglected uh, piece of what we believe about Jesus, you know, underrated in terms of its significance for us or maybe not understood as well as it might be. The fact that Jesus ascended uh, into heaven in his body means that we have a physical advocate in heaven right now, acting in our best interest, interceding on our behalf, and preparing a place for us just like he said he would. For real, just as real as the person next to you. That's what the ascension means. It means some other stuff too, but means that. But both the story we read today and uh, the giving of the Great Commission that's recorded in Matthew 28, interestingly, happened in Galilee, not in Jerusalem. So this is, this is by way of setup for understanding the text for today. Quick timeline review. Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. Three days later, he was uh, resurrected and began to appear to his followers and disciples. And, you know, the, the synoptics and John are a little bit different. It's tough to piece all these things together. But it seems that Jesus appeared to the two Marys at the tomb and then to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. But the first appearance to the disciples as a whole group, uh, minus Thomas, happened on on the night of of Jesus' resurrection, that first Easter evening. Here's, Here's that story. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them. 
and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. The doors were locked, right? These disciples, the apostles, were living in fear. Their leader had just been killed, and they assumed that the Jewish leaders were coming for them next. The doors were locked. And even after Jesus appeared to them, the fear didn't go away. Uh, Jesus appeared to them a second time, one week later, in the same house. Look at this. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. The doors were locked again. I mean, fear was still very much there. They were wrestling with the resurrection, just like I would have been, just like you would have if, if we were there. Um, I mean, they, they were trying to get their minds around what this meant. And to understand our story today, we need to get our uh, imagination engaged as to what the apostles were experiencing. I mean, th- think about this. Jesus himself had called them to follow him. That in and of itself is very unique because rabbis didn't call their disciples. They, they kind of hung out and waited for would-be disciples to make an application. Then they evaluated the person upon their merit. So uh, 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 th- those first disciples knew this was an incredible opportunity. It's like nothing they'd ever experienced. So they left everything and followed Jesus. They spent three years with him, uh, following him, living with him, observing his way of life, being challenged by him, being loved by him. They were convinced he was the Messiah and and they were certain that he would become the next king of Israel. Then suddenly, in a matter of hours, everything changed. He was arrested, tried, judged, crucified, and laid in a tomb. When the followers of Jesus buried their Messiah, they buried their fondest expectations with him. Thanks to Chuck Swindoll for those words. And Jesus was gone. The dream that had been the focus of the last three years of their lives was crushed. And from a human perspective, it certainly looked like they were ending up on the wrong side of history because their leader was dead and they were, fear- they were afraid that, that they were next. Jesus was dead, but then he wasn't. And he appeared to them, and then he appeared a week later. So imagine your way into that week between the the first two appearances to the gathered disciples. What was your Monday like after the first appearance? What was your Tuesday like? I mean, can you imagine the, the emotional, spiritual wrestling match going on? In, in, these, in these people? And people don't come back from the dead. But a guy just came back from the dead. I mean, the resurrection of Jesus confronts every false narrative by which we're living. There's no way around that. I mean, when Jesus appeared to the apostles, they were seeing something with their own eyes that called into question almost everything they believed about the world. That might be a little strong. Uh, maybe it clarified, made absolutely concrete and tangible what they believed about the world. But more, 
right? It, it, called into their, it, it called into question their worldview. It was for them a category five worldview hurricane. Just, whoa. The resurrection of Jesus meant that the world was not what they thought it was. It, it meant that their lives were not what they thought they were. And it was a struggle. They saw Jesus alive and they were struggling to believe it, wrestling with the resurrection and all of its implications. Luke's gospel gives us some insight. Look at this. When Jesus had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broad fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Evidently, joy and amazement can be a barrier to faith. Or at least they hadn't yet pressed through that initial experience of joy and amazement to the place where they internalized that they now lived in a world where a resurrection had just happened for real. They were glad and amazed, but they didn't yet trust. They didn't yet accept, right? Which is the response to which God is inviting us. A response of trust in the one who loved us enough to send Jesus. So in, in the time between Jesus' first appearance to them and Pentecost, the apostles were living in limbo. I mean, Jesus appeared now and then, and, and says the scripture, gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. But the experience wasn't one of Jesus with them continually in that time. Jesus appeared, and then he would not be seen. So it was after the second appearance, in, in one of these kind of in-between times, when the apostles left Jerusalem and went to Galilee. In the flow of John's gospel, the passage for today records the third appearance to the gathered disciples. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples. Well, after what? All the events in Jerusalem, the first two appearances of Jesus to them in Jerusalem. After that, and after they traveled to Galilee, Jesus appeared to them. Now, in the original language, that word appeared means to make visible what was not previously seen. This is a revelation. All of the appearances of Jesus aren't just, you know, nice visits. They are revelations from God to humanity. They're making visible what was not previously seen. Whenever Jesus appeared, he was making something known about himself or about God that was not previously known. Now, now, the jury is kind of out on this, at least in the commentary world, as to whether the apostles were bailing on their call to follow Jesus by going to Galilee. Some people kind of see this as them returning to the life that they knew before Jesus called them, back, back to the fishing life, the family business, kind of like, you know, to forget all this weird Jesus stuff, we're going back to, to what we know. I, I'm more inclined to think this story is more about them living in limbo and this weird tension of trying to put the pieces together, uh, what they believed, the person they knew, and what they had seen. It's likely that they were in Galilee because Jesus told them to go there. I mean, to the two Marys at the tomb, Jesus said this, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So apparently, apparently Jesus knew about this reunion in Galilee in advance. He, he had that meeting in mind and he instructed his apostles 
to go there. So when Jesus met them in Galilee, they were struggling. They're in limbo. You can imagine your way into that place. There's uncertainty, there's fear. They've seen something that's difficult to believe, yet it's real. So they're in that place. Then they encounter Jesus. All right, seven of the remaining 11 disciples are included in this story. They all went fishing with Peter that night. And their number included the sons of Zebedee, so James and John, along with Peter. So that's the inner sanctum, right? The three. Jesus had the 72, the 12, and the three in whom he invested at different levels. But the three were that inner group. The fishing trip was awash. They didn't catch anything. Uh, Jesus was on shore. They didn't recognize him. Some people spiritualize this. I kind of think it's probably because it was just dark. It's early morning. He couldn't see the shore. They were 100 yards off. They heard a voice that led with an informal, affectionate way of addressing people. Like our, hey guys. And then a question followed, which in the original language presumes a negative answer. So again, in English, maybe something like this. Uh, hey guys, so you, you haven't caught anything, have you? Nope. <laughs> we got skunked. Well, try, try the right side of the boat. Maybe he thought he was a fellow fisherman on shore. I mean, who knows why they listened to him. They didn't yet know it was Jesus. Uh, maybe this was, you know, bystander advice that any modern fisherman has to endure. <laughs> Did you try over by the rocks? No, no, wrong lure. Use the orange wiggly one. I know nothing about fishing. <laughs> the, the fish are over in the shallows by the weeds. Have you, have you gone over there? And from the shore, uh, throw out your net on the right side. You'll find some over there. Oh, we'll find some over there, you say. Maybe they did it just to prove this guy wrong. I mean, who is this guy? We're pros. Of course, they do it. Miraculous catch of fish. And instantly, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's the Apostle John, right, who wrote this gospel, said, it's the Lord. How did he know? It didn't get any lighter. He couldn't see Jesus on the shore. He knew because it was, to quote Yogi Berra, like deja vu all over again. And this is a reenactment of the time Jesus called Peter, James, and John to follow him. It's a reenactment of their calling story. Uh, Here's that story in Luke. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people, that's the Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, who of course would later become Peter, Simon Peter, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break, so they signaled their partners in the other boats to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me. I am a sinful man, 
For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled up their boats on shore, left everything, and followed him. Maybe it was the same beach. Probably the same boat. Definitely the same scenario. Fishing all night, catch nothing. Jesus tells them to do something, they get a miraculous catch. Also, same reaction from Peter. Did you notice that? He goes straight to Jesus both times. In the first meeting with Jesus, he goes directly to Jesus and says, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. I mean, in the passage today, Peter's denial of Jesus had to be front and center in his mind. He had to be feeling feeling sidelined spiritually. He goes directly to Jesus. He didn't say it in this one, but I think it's pretty safe to assume he was feeling it, thinking it maybe. Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. You see, Jesus is reenacting the call to the three. And in so doing, he is saying, remember when you first met me. Remember my invitation to you. Again, in Jesus' day, rabbis didn't call their disciples. The rabbi would take applications and consider the applicant with a single thought in mind. Can this person become like me? Do they have it in them to live like me, be like me, do the things that I do? If a rabbi believed the would-be disciple could be like them, the rabbi would invite the person to become a disciple by saying, come, follow me. That's code from rabbi to would-be disciple that says, I believe you can be like me with my help. So think of Peter in particular. It was on that same beach three years earlier when Jesus said to them, follow me. Code, I believe that with my help, you can be like me. I will make you fish for men. At once they left their nets and followed him. See, Jesus reenacted the story of their calling to help them remember his belief that with his help, they could become like him. And it wasn't so much about what was in them on their own. It was the fact that God would fill them with the Holy Spirit. And with God's help from within, by God's presence living within, they could be like him. And it was all because of God and what the Lord was doing. It was like Jesus was saying, remember when you first met me. Remember my invitation to you. Remember what that invitation meant. Remember the confidence that I have in you, not because of you, but because of what I'm going to do in you. And and think of Peter's situation. Put yourself in his shoes. I mean, you can feel it, can't you? Uh, Jesus' grace and, and sensitivity 
the, the deep desire to, to restore and empower. And then Jesus turns and engages Peter directly. See, gladly, in God's kingdom, no one is defined by their worst day. Can I have a thank you, Lord? Right? No, not, none of us are identified primarily by our worst moment or worst decision. You've got those things just like I do. You've struggled with the shame and guilt of those things just like I have. Maybe they were public in nature and it was an incredibly humiliating experience for you in in the eyes of others. Maybe it was legal in nature and carried legal ramifications, possibly even jail or prison. I mean, I can keep doing that, right? I mean, what are the things that define our worst day, our worst decision? See, according to Jesus, those worst moments, those worst decisions do not define us because as as an adopted child of God, once we've responded to Jesus in trust, our identity is in Christ. And I believe when we're in that place, we can hear the words that God spoke over Jesus at his baptism as words that God speaks over us as his followers now. This is my son, my daughter, whom I love. With her, him, I am well pleased. Not because of what we've accomplished on our own, but because of the great transaction that's happened through what Jesus did on the cross on our behalf. See, brokenness is real, failure happens, and Jesus wants to restore us. Jesus is the one who restores us, and in the end, the only one who can. When they were finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to Peter the second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered Jesus, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, take care of my sheep. Jesus said to Peter the third time, Simon, son of John, do do you love me? Peter felt bad because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He answered Jesus, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Three times did Peter deny Jesus. Three times did Jesus restore Peter. It's a complete restoration. Deep grace for the whole person. Do you need that? Because it's not just for Peter. It's for us. And I believe in it we can hear the Lord speaking to us. Remember how you once loved me. Be sorry for your sin and love me again as you did at first. So remember the invitation. Jesus believes that with his help, we can be like him. The Holy Spirit guides us into a more Jesus-shaped life. 
And that's the goal here. The, the trajectory of the Christian life is to become increasingly like Jesus so that our lives might look a, a little bit more like Jesus was living our life in our place to those around us, especially those who know us best. See, Jesus says, remember when you first met me. Remember my invitation to you. If you've struggled with being defined by your worst day, your worst decision, your worst moment, uh, receive the grace of the Lord. Uh, The one who restores us would like to restore you. Turn to him and receive that. Uh, if, If you haven't met him, if you haven't accepted that initial invitation of come follow me, that is open to us. That's the reason Jesus came, he said, was to invite everyone everywhere back into a relationship with him. And this isn't just like a religious part of our life. Christians believe that this is real life, coming back into a relationship with God. And it's, it's not like Jesus is my buddy kind of thing, but it, it's, it's being restored, uh, uh, being set free, uh, having a peace that prevails over any of our circumstances. I mean, there's all, the whole new kind of life is available in Jesus. This is the witness of, of the church throughout the centuries, and it is what Jesus said. So if you haven't met him, if you haven't accepted his invitation, you can. You really can. There's no magic incantation prayer, right? It simply involves a humble turning to God and praying something like, God, I need your help. I want to say yes to as much of Jesus as I understand right now. And I ask you to help me. I ask you to pour out your spirit on me. I ask you to forgive me. I know I've done wrong. I need your help. Please, God, and thank you. That's kind of it, right? And by the way, if you're newer to the Bible, the image that scripture uses to describe God's response when one of us humbles ourselves and prays that prayer is seen in the story of the prodigal son where the father is like camped out on the porch just looking, just waiting for the first sign, for the first inkling that one of his kids is coming up the path back home. And the father runs to that person. He's he's pleased, delighted, overjoyed. No guilt. No, where have you been? Just welcome home. So come home. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your deep grace for us. We need it. We need that depth of grace. Uh, We know because we know ourselves. We know how broken we are. We know the proclivities of our heart. Uh, So God, thank you that you not only save us, but that you restore us when we veer off the way. 
that you welcome us back, that you're patient with us, that you keep working with us. God, you are so very good. Thank you. I thank you that your patience is intended for our salvation, as the scripture says. We, from wherever we are right now, turn to you and ask your help, God. Pour out your spirit on us. Help us turn to you. Help us move toward you. I thank you that you have come to us. Help us receive all that you offer us. Uh, By your spirit and in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.